0: Probably cumulatively, if we added up all the things we've heard or read about mindfulness, <laughs> it'd be a lot. And sometimes we hear things about mindfulness that are quite dramatic and lofty, and sometimes it's described in very ordinary terms. Jack Cornfield said, in terms of mindfulness, the sap that runs through the Buddha's tree of liberation, a powerful healing medicine. So we have these poetic descriptions. Here's another. Mindfulness is conducive to great profit. That is the highest mental development. And it is through such attainment that deliverance from the sufferings of the cycle of existence is possible. The person who delights in mindfulness and regards heedlessness with dread is not liable to fall away. He or she is in the vicinity of Nibbana. thought it might be nice to take a few minutes at the beginning tonight so we won't have small groups tonight. We'll stay as a whole group but uh, maybe take five or so minutes at the beginning and just hear some thoughts from the group about what, how you, how your mind understands the experience, actual experience of mindfulness. And even now, like just with the setup, just notice with mindfulness, like kind of wanting to have an answer. Because a better way might be just to notice the mindfulness that is present and to see what words come to mind that are associated with the experience that you're aware of right now. And it might be, you know, observing how self-consciousness is being known or hearing the sound of that bird. Thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, Alexis. Alexis. And real loud so we can hear you, if you don't mind. Thanks. That's really, You see how brave we have to be. I think it's actually appropriate to be careful about talking about mindfulness um, out there and with friends who maybe aren't practicing. Because we can end up saying something like Alexis just did, and then it, in a sense, falls flat, not like here, but maybe out there it might, and... Uh, and then, unfortunately, we can start to have doubt about our own experience, like, well, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, or maybe that experience, uh, it isn't, you know, it isn't an experience I've actually had. So we do want to be a little bit careful about um, how we put words to it and hold it lightly, more like painting a picture, you know, we throw some things out there and, uh And it helps us understand. You know, there's some value, like in the right setting, there's some real value. Because we notice when we're stretching it a little, like trying to tie it up into need of a bundle, this is what mindfulness is. So it fits our sort of conceptual map. And uh, Or the other end of the spectrum would be not wanting to talk about it. Not wanting to... um, sort of use concepts and language because uh, we, maybe we feel it's too delicate and it will be stained by words or something like that or too special or something like that. So we want to, it's it's nice to hear different people talk about it and share with friends, even in a big group like this. Yeah, maybe a couple other people. Steve. What's really interesting is that, like, to observe that last thought that came up. You know, because this is the thing. We have to make that transition from uh, the expert, you know, whether it's the Buddha or somebody sitting up on a platform, and and more be interested in our actual experience. You know, and uh, like what I heard you say, I that sounds really similar to something I might say about mindfulness. And it relates, too, to something I said in the guided sit about wisdom. You know, wisdom can do its work when there's mindfulness. Mindfulness, in a sense, creates that space, or what you said, you know, stepping back. And uh, it allows for some choice, or that space allows for wisdom to see the choices and to maybe choose not to get identified as much or at all in that moment. So there is this connection between the sustaining of mindful awareness and wisdom being able to do its work. And it's not even the meditator, I mean you could say the meditator is doing the work, but wisdom its its own thing, it's its own natural impersonal process that comes alive when conditions are there for it to come alive. It needs space, right? Because what mindful, what wisdom is able to do, is sort of assess through, because of insight or past experience, it can assess how things are unfolding. It can assess, you know, if the mind unfolds in this way, it's going to be stressful, or if the mind unfolds in this way, it's going to be easeful. Thanks. Yeah. But you bring up a good point, Charlene, because one of the things, too, in mindfulness, it has a a quality of joy because the mind is less involved in dividing things up, right? Because so much of that work of the thinking mind is um, analyzing in terms of good and bad, me and you, and that kind of work is stressful and sometimes very stressful, and so when there's more of the attitude of mindfulness or the way of relating of mindfulness, then quite naturally, unavoidably, there's a sense of wholeness because the mind isn't determining that this experience doesn't belong in this moment or I want more of this experience. It's instead relating in this way where it just, whatever is being known, the attitude is well, it belongs. It's, what, it's the way that it is. And so that's, that makes things seem more beautiful, even unpleasant things, because the beauty isn't that the, it's pleasant in the ordinary sense of the word. The beauty is that the mind isn't, it's what the mind isn't doing. The mind isn't determining that it's bad. It isn't, because when I determine, when this thinking mind determines something's bad, then there has to be weight associated with it. Like if I say something embarrassing now and then my mind, oh, that was stupid, then in order for there to be consistency, as soon as the mind determines that that was stupid, there has to be a crunch, a, a contraction to be consistent because stupid things, doing stupid things is bad, it hurts, it's heavy. In the same way that if something, you know, we think something is really good, then we feel, so the mind is creating this. And mindfulness has a the lightness that some people mentioned already is the, the absence of dividing the world up in this way. Maybe one more. Yeah, Megan. Like for me, maybe related to what you said, Megan, is a kind of unflappableness like some quality of the heart or mind that is that knows that it, that has confidence that it's going to be okay. Whatever shows up, however good or bad the sit is, there's some aspect of the mind that's unflappable. Is going to t- isn't going to take the bait of you know I'm so bad. His one phrase from the tradition, the world is entangled in a knot. Who can untangle this tangle? And I like one phrase or one uh, description of mindfulness that I like a lot is, and I don't know where this came I might have come up with this or maybe somebody else that I can't remember now, but is mindfulness as a universal solvent. And when we think about things like water, and some of you probably have visited the Grand Canyon or have seen canyons, and it's so amazing what wind and water can do over time. Something so solid can be dissolved or moved. And mindfulness has that same capacity to uh, strip things away, lay things bare, open things up, reveal the truth. And I like, too, that image of water uh, as a universal solvent because it takes often a long time for it to do its work. And so that makes that sense of patience with the mindfulness. So, you know, in the, in the tradition we use mindfulness in different ways, including sometimes we use mindfulness as synonymous with the whole path coming together. So a moment of mindfulness, it's as if, or it is, the whole path, the whole eightfold path that we've been studying. So when the mind is mindful, then we can reflect on sila, on ethical conduct, because generally when there's, the mindfulness is in balance and steady, continuous, then the mind isn't involved in harming and stealing and sexual misconduct, in bad livelihood, wrong livelihood or wrong speech. It's just not likely that those things are going to arise when mindfulness is strong and continuous. And the same thing, it's like one of the descriptions in the tradition is that when mindfulness is strong, it brings or it gathers all of its friends. So many people mention this, like some of the wholesome qual- qualities of forgiveness and patience and steadiness, you know, that we might have other words to you know, other words in terms of qualities of the mind, we might name those qualities with other words, but they tend to gather when the mindfulness is strong. Mindfulness is in a way the quality of mind that knows what's missing from the mind or knows what's in excess in the mind. It's what reveals, opens up, like, okay, this is the way the mind is. This comes up in Qigong practice sometimes too or when you're working with subtle energy regardless of the modality. You know, instead of, like some of you I know do healing work, and instead of this sense of the healer being the one who goes in there and and moves things around and makes things right, it's more about understanding the, 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 what do we call it, homeostasis? this natural balancing, or how the system knows how to come back to equilibrium. And so this is like mindfulness then reveals, it's like a mirror, it reveals to the mind-body system how it is. And so if it's out of balance, it's reflecting back how it's out of balance. And that's exactly the information that's needed for to support the balancing of what's out of balance. If there's an excess, seeing the excess supports the releasing of the excess. If there's a deficiency, seeing the deficiency is supporting the supporting of that deficiency, the coming in. And so you can think of mindfulness in the same way. When there's a moment of mindfulness, we might realize how exhausted the mind is. It's not a problem. If the mind, heart, body is really exhausted, it's really good to know that the mind, body, is exhausted. Or if we're really angry, it's really good for mindfulness to reveal, oh, there's a lot of anger here, a lot of upset. Or if the mind is in a really beautiful place, mindfulness reveals, so the mind's in a really beautiful place. Also in the tradition, mindfulness is inseparably associated with all karmically wholesome states of consciousness. You can have a wholesome state of consciousness without mindfulness being present. And next week when we have small groups, one interesting thing you might want to take up, and you can reflect this week and then bring your sharing, bring your thoughts to the small group next week. But you might think about times in your life where your mind, your heart, your body felt in a beautiful balance, and you felt naturally skillful, responsive, loving. And then even now with memory, in hindsight, then, in a sense, dissect or deconstruct that really beautiful time, beautiful moment, in terms of the mental qualities. What was active in the mind? Or how might you understand that moment in terms of the presence of mindfulness or not don't like assume that mindfulness was there but reflect deeply about that beautiful balanced skillful time and then just try to understand what was the role of mindfulness in those at that time in those moments you could also bring to mind times when maybe not... So beautiful of a moment, but moments where you felt that you um, wisdom arose and you avoided falling off a cliff, not a literal cliff, but maybe that, but like about to do something really that might have been unskillful, but then didn't, or times when you did do something really unskillful, and then to dissect that was mindfulness present, what was there instead? So that we're we're getting better at understanding why somebody might say that mindfulness is inseparable from all wholesome states of consciousness. Like, is that true for us? That it's not there when we're not skillful, and it is there when we are skillful. And to really seeing that, like all those different moments, looking at all those different experiences, alive when we're living our life. This next week, and then in hindsight from past experiences, we'll get a much better idea of what mindfulness is. Because what really brings it alive isn't one experience, but understanding how it is in a lot of different moments. Like, what is the salient, what are the salient features of mindfulness? Some of you know already that we, um, that it, the word itself, sati itself, is related to the word for remembering, or not forgetting. So it has this uh, one salient feature: is keeping the moment in mind, not forgetting that it's like this now. And that's what I try to emphasize in the guided sit tonight. you can play with that, you know, in your own way at home this week, like really you, for your meditation time really keep it that simple explore keeping it that simple just keeping in mind that it's like this now not asking anything more and then this really comes from ajahn brahm the a western buddhist monk where he he really like when he asks, when he's training people to meditate he doesn't give them additional instruction until they can consistently sit for an hour with pretty much an unbroken, present mo- sustained present moment awareness. Doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. You're not focusing on it. He doesn't want you to focus on anything during this part of the training. Just sustaining present moment awareness. Not losing it. So I sometimes it feels like we're riding a wild Bronco, which I've never done. <laughs> but using my imagination, you know, Like, it's as if the moment wants to knock us off. And, you know, our job is not to be fooled, not to assume that because there's pain in the body, because there's this exciting thought, because there's this fear, that mindfulness can't simply reflect oh, yeah, now it's like this. So it's really about that, sustaining that thread of, oh, okay this is how it is without having to do anything to name it or to do anything but just to sustain present moment awareness and then if when you get good then he'll and you you can do that consistently for an hour then he'll ask you to notice and have the intention in the mind for a silent sustained present moment awareness so that when thinking arises, the mind recognizes or uh, acknowledges that maybe that's not necessary. Like maybe there doesn't need to be any thinking to support the sustained present moment awareness. Maybe whatever that thinking was going to do doesn't need to happen right now. So I suggested that a little bit in the guided set too. So you could do the same, but don't do that prematurely Make sure you have some momentum where it feels pretty steady, just sustaining present moment awareness. And then see if if the mind is inclined to quiet down. Like basically to to sustain that present moment awareness without thinking, without using, needing the thinking mind. So first we're sustaining non-distraction, and then we're sustaining non-distraction and non-thinking. And then the third level would be focused, sustained, focused, silent meditation. And here, the mind, we're seeing if the mind is willing to let go of diversity. So, nice sound of the bird, niggly feeling in my knee, somebody moving. So all these different because every time the mind discriminates knowing different objects, it's like a, it has an impact. Because the mind, the heart is sensitive, and so it's being impacted by all the things it's sensitive to. So we can quiet down even more and let the mind rest with one particular object, just let it find its own object, it might be the object you've trained with, like breathing, or might be even more subtle, like just the quietness of the mind itself is what the awareness rests with, rests on, just knowing peace, as I suggested in the guided set. And the, one of the reasons for taking up a very simple instruction for a while is like part of what we're doing in this Buddha studies class is we're trying to become more clear about these qualities of mind. It really helps strengthen the quality when we can recognize it more and more. For one, the mind has confidence in it, confidence basically in the competence and goodness of the mind or heart itself. And that's enlivening. It just brings a lot of energy. And uh, and then it's easier to remember mindfulness when we know it, when we've reflected on it in this way. Another way to just an image that I've shared with the group in the past comes from Guy Armstrong. I heard this a while back. Uh, he's one of the Spirit Rock teachers, teaches at IMS as well. <clears throat> a Really wonderful teacher, and he has this thought experiment you know you're in deep 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 space so deep that there are no stars in front of you at all so you just see infinite or whatever darkness no light whatsoever but just so happens there is close behind you not too close but close enough behind you a big star sending out its light but because there's nothing out there to reflect the light of that star behind me, I just see darkness. Until something comes in front to reflect that light, and then I see it. So this is just a image, you know, a thought or a concept that you might, it might be useful about this, uh, what we're calling mindfulness. So we have that image of a mirror that effortlessly reflects, or you can have the sense that there is the light of the mind, the light of mindfulness. Its nature is to bounce off of objects and to know them, you know, is to connect with objects. And that that light is always there. We don't need to make an effort to illuminate the space of the present moment we just have to remember to not forget that objects are being illuminated objects are being known and part of this remembering not to forget is you know part of what the thinking mind does the deluded thinking mind is it it always imagines that this isn't the moment i'm supposed to be mindful of like there's a different moment. You notice this especially when you've been distracted and then mindfulness arises or mindfulness reappears and there's a sense of, oh, I'm not, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And just to eventually in practice, that should be a moment of humor right when the mind says that. like Because it's really ridiculous. Here it is, mindfulness is doing... What it's meant to do, it's reflecting back what's going on, and then ignorance arises, no no no, this isn't right. I'm supposed to be with the breath, or I'm you know definitely not supposed to be thinking about that. So to to just appreciate the, like the impersonality of ignorance, that it says things like that. Just the habit mind that sort of parental energy. And we've all been you know, we have it just how we've learned because, you know, we've learned to be with the breath or something like that or whatever particular instruction that you've gotten in the past. Another image, so I'll just offer these three. So we have the mirror, we have the starlight image, and then the third is a phrase from um, Ajahn Chah. Again, many of you have heard this many times before, but he used it quite often in his teaching, The still flowing water as an image for mindfulness and the mind itself. So there's part of this dynamic of what we call the mind, is stillness, and part of the dynamic is the flowing, the movement. So there is something that's still, that's unmoving, and there's something that's moving. So what's moving are all the different objects Of the mind and body. Mental activity, emotions are moving, sights and sounds and sensations are moving, smells and tastes of course. So all of that is moving and then there's something that's not moving. And as I'm gonna share, you know, from uh, some teachings from Thich Nhat Hanh, the still flowing water, they're not like two different things. And that's the point that Ajahn Chah makes with this teaching. You know, he'll, you've seen still water, you've seen flowing water, but have you seen still flowing water? Sort of like a trick question. No, we haven't. But that's the nature of the mind. And it really depends on what we look at or like what we're, how we're aiming the mind. But the knowing, the stillness of knowing and the activity of the object being known they're not different. Even though in these images, you know, the star shining its light seems to be distinct from the object that's then being known because it's coming in front and reflecting the light. Or the mirror seems different than the thing that arises in front of it to be reflected. But that's not our actual experience. That's our concept, our idea, right? Because the ideas. It's instructive, it's useful. But we don't want to separate that. So Thich Nhat Han wrote a book a while back um, called Transformation and Healing about the four foundations of mindfulness, which is really the main collection of teachings on mindfulness. I mean the Buddha talked about mindfulness all the time, but in this particular discourse it's very systematic teaching on mindfulness, many of you have been in that class, the Buddhist studies class on the Four Foundations, and are quite familiar with the mindfulness of body, mindfulness of the feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of the maps of the mind, the qualities of the mind. So this is Thich Nhat Hanh's book on that, and at the end, after giving his commentary on the Buddha's discourse he then distills some principles of mindfulness and the mind itself. In the first one, he says, all dhammas are mind. So we have to remember that the word dhamma it has different meanings. Uh, and remember, dhamma is the same as dharma. So in Sanskrit, the word is dharma. In Pali, the Pali language, it's dhamma. And sometimes it's capitalized. And generally it then is referring to the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, capitalized or the teachings of the Buddha point to Dharma, point to the way it is. So that's maybe a a more um, fundamental definition of Dharma or Dhamma is the way it is. So the Buddha's teachings are Dharma because they point to the way it is. And then when it's not capitalized, often dharma or dhamma, or, and sometimes it's in plural, dhammas, are referring to objects of experience or appearances. And it, it might actually be a better word than object to use the word appearance because that's more in line with our experience. The idea that, you know, seeing Dave, that, that that's an object, a visual object really, in the way that we use that word object, makes it seem like it stands apart. But a more accurate word might be there's an appearance being known instead of an object being known. And so his first principle, all dhammas are mind. All appearances, experiences are objects of the mind. Nothing is outside of the mind. One of the things he says in this section is the object of cognition, and the subject of cognition, do not exist independently of each other. And this is really important because there's some confusion. It's very easy actually to be confused about this, because sometimes, and it's emphasized, you know, awareness as an end in itself. But the way the Buddha almost always talked about consciousness in this case is that consciousness and the object that's being known are inseparable. You don't get one without the other. Without an object, there's not a consciousness of the object. Without the consciousness, there's no object. What is an object that there's no consciousness of? It doesn't make sense. An object only makes sense, it's only relevant when consciousness is knowing it. I mean, philosophically, it might be interesting to speculate about what experiences are that aren't being experienced, right? But in terms of a human being, what's interesting is that there are experiences, and by definition, if there is an experience, it's being known. So this is something important to understand about mindfulness. We talk about mindfulness as a separate thing, but mindfulness is always knowing something, remembering something, recalling something. We hear about this in terms of the teachings on interdependence. The next principle that uh, the Buddha talks about, or I'm sorry, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about in his book, he distills, you know, from the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, he's distilling these principles. All dhammas, get it right here, All dhammas are mind. The second one is to observe is to be one with the object of observation. So this tells us something about mindfulness. A moment of real mindfulness means the sense of self disappears, momentarily at least. So that means that mindfulness isn't the sense of being in the watchtower gazing down on our knee pain or gazing down on a thought or an emotion but that the knowing and the object being known we want to see them together because otherwise what we're doing unbeknownst mindfulness unaware of it is the mind is thinking that there's a me being mindful so let's say I have knee pain and I have that sense that I'm here observing the knee pain that means that and the, this can, you know, the mind is quite quick, so the mind is aware of throbbing, and then it's aware of being somebody back there knowing the throbbing, and then knowing the throbbing, and then aware of the thought, "I'm back here knowing the throbbing." So it's knowing different things, and then because it's all happening so fast, it just assumes that that's actual the actual reality, that in some real sense there is a somebody, the observer, the meditator back in some safe place with some distance observing. And that's why like even in the sharing after the sit about people's experience of mindfulness there is a sense of distance or space but when we really look at it although there is a sense of space the reality is that the object being known that, that there's a real intimacy. So The space isn't a space of distance. The space is a space of non-reactivity. But the mind doesn't know what to do with that sense of space. It's unfamiliar. So it interprets it the way that it knows how to interpret things. Like, when I'm non-reactive, it's because I've got enough distance and I feel safe. The mind doesn't really know the experience of being right with something and feeling safe at the same time. And that's what wisdom does. Wisdom understands, you know, and often wisdom is, you know, like I said, it, it gathers around the experience of mindfulness. It's approximate cause for, the proximate cause for insight is the continuity of mindfulness. Wisdom arises in that environment. And wisdom knows how to leave things alone. Mindfulness, wisdom, knows how to leave things alone. So it feels like we have some distance. There's a strong emotion. Someone's pushing our buttons, so to speak. Actually, we're pushing our own buttons. It seems like somebody's pushing our buttons. Or that's the story we tell ourselves. But wisdom knows, you know, when we're mindfully aware, wisdom knows it's just that yucky feeling. And so it feels like there's some distance, but we're right there with the feeling. There's no need to separate from the feeling because the heart, the mind doesn't feel threatened because it understands it's just a feeling being known. See, things only seem threatening when there's a strong sense of self. When there's not a strong se- sense of self, the object of experience or the appearance of experience, it doesn't seem threatening. It's just something being known. And then immediately when the sense of self comes in, it seems threatening again. To observe is to be one with the object of experience now the interesting thing about this is then the object of experience and the mind itself the nature of the mind itself which is naturally inherently free like the mirror is never affected by what it reflects it's stainless so When, If the object and the observer, the subject and object are one, not intrinsically separate, then what begins to happen with continuity of mindfulness is no matter what the object that is being known, it starts having the flavor of liberation because it's having the flavor of the mind itself. The mind is essentially radiant and pure. So it doesn't matter if we're mindfully aware of pain in the knee, or mindfully aware of the breath with continuity, or mindfully aware of mental activity, because as the mind knows things as they are, knows Dhamma the way it is, it's going to, in that object, in the um, object that's being known, the experience that's being known, it's going to, See the nature of the mind right there, and the nature of the mind is stainless, unaffected, unburdened by what comes and goes. It's the stillness, or the peace, or whatever you want to call it freedom, isn't affected by the activity of body and mind. Mental activity, body activity. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. This is the basic realization, you know, in little glimpses, the sort of development of insight is that insight, having that insight more and more, that right there opening to things as they are, that's where we find the liberation. And that brings us to the third principle that Thich Nhat Hanh distills from his study of his own mind and his understanding of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. So the first one, again, is all dhammas are mind. It's all mind. In later schools of Buddhism, you know, there was a whole school of Buddhism that was the mind-only school, you know, especially in these philosophical debates, sort of like, no, it's just mind. But we're not trying to teach a metaphysical truth. We're really trying to use these words to help us get clearer about our actual experience. That experience is an appearance in the mind. It's being known in the mind. It's all happening in the mind that's just how it is that's how we know the world so dhammas are mind to observe is to be one with the object right because the knowing and the object that's being known we don't need anything outside of that we don't need the superstructure of a me being the one who's bringing the knowing to the object right all whatever we might create outside of knowing knowing the object is in the way of knowing, knowing the object. So mindfulness, to the nth degree, is just the simplicity of knowing, knowing the object. So there's nothing outside of that. It's that they become one. And then the third principle that Thich Nhat Hanh distills, true mind and deluded mind are one. So once we get sort of a more, you know, the kind of moment of mindfulness we like, we get that that's, just one thing, not me knowing the object. Object object is being known. That's how you might want to language it that way because it supports that experience. Now he makes the point that the deluded mind and the liberated mind, he says true mind, but that might push some buttons. So the true mind and deluded mind are one. So that principle is really important because when distraction arises, or we get restless, or we're bored, or we're ready to be done with our set, and we have another, you know, eight days of our residential retreat to go. <laughs> and it can really feel like a, you know, complete freakout. Like because sometimes it, the mind just, you know, rears that sort of conditioned mind just rears its head and says, "I am done." Like some of you have heard me quote Pema Children, who says, "Never underestimate." The desire to bolt, or the tendency to bolt, because that's. How, but the key is then to understand that that, like in the later traditions, Mahayana tradition, they made this big deal about samsara and nirvana are not different. And uh, samsara, the cycles of suffering, so it's the bad stuff, right? And nirvana is the good stuff. And they made this point: they're not different. Don't, don't turn the world, don't reinforce that tendency of turning the world into good and bad. So when you have a difficult mind state, a difficult body state, what we're looking for is right here, not somewhere else. Now, the conditioned personality may be all about getting somewhere else, but you don't have to oppose that either. So your body may move, you know, or your mind may move. But the practice is not to believe that liberation is somewhere else. Because that's the basic, that's the essence of ignorance, is thinking it's somewhere else. Because human beings work really hard. It's not that we're afraid of work, both spiritual work and just kind of ordinary work. People are willing to work hard. But we keep thinking that, like to be happy, we have to do something It's out there somewhere. We keep assuming it's somewhere else than here. And we're endlessly frustrated. That's a good definition of samsara. Seeking happiness in places where we'll never find it. Out there. Because you know what out there is, of course, it's just the concept in the mind. There isn't any out there. Because all dhammas are mind, right? It's all here. It's only this, right here. This is the mind. All dhammas, that's everything, is this, mind. So when I think happiness is out there, I'm deluding myself because there isn't an out there. That's just the mind now saying to itself, happiness is out there. That's just the thought being known. Except when there's ignorance, then the mind gets lost, gets contained in a sense or trapped in that concept. So, um, let me read a little bit from that section. Things in their true nature and illusions are the same basic substance. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. That is why practice is a matter of transforming diluted mind and not a matter of seeking for a true mind elsewhere, right? So where we find the true mind or the liberation is right where we don't want to look because we're so sure this isn't it. We have to be willing to look there. No matter how difficult it is, it may not be easy. We may fail many, many times, get seduced, become reactive, believe the thought that I can't I can't really practice when this is happening, thinking that our practice is somewhere else. Uh, Joseph Goldstein, in one of his earlier books, Insight Meditation, says, the power of mindfulness as a force in the mind lies in awareness of what is present with what, without identifying with the experience, without identifying with the knower. There, that is where the freedom is. A lies in the awareness of what is present without identifying with the experience or without identifying with the knower. That is where freedom is. And the image that Thich Nhat uses in this section is of the ocean and how tr- easy it would be to get transfixed with the surface of the ocean. And if it's really rough, like an agitated mind, a disturbed mind, it seems like that's what's getting our attention. It's as if we're defining the whole ocean, this great immensity by the roughness of the surface, which in the great scheme of things is nothing compared to the ocean. You know, when we think about the ocean, doesn't it get six miles deep in some place, something like that? Is that right? can't remember now, but it's deep. (laughs) You know, and just think about how much there is But how easy, like even for us, now just conceptually, how much we define the ocean by the surface. Because the body of the ocean is so incomprehensible to our minds, the enormity of it. It's just hard to imagine. And this is what we know, so we assume it's the whole thing. It's the same thing with the agitation, the pain, the excitement, or whatever it is that's catching, causing reactivity. It just seems like, you know, it's everything. So the fourth principle that Thich Nhat dis, uh, distills is mindfulness is the way of no conflict, no struggle. And you know, the Buddha says this all the time, that we have to put aside every single distaste. We have to put aside every tendency or every justification for struggle because that's not mindfulness. Mindfulness is not a struggle. And this is why relaxation is such a useful barometer in our practice. Now there are some things to be gained by, you know, resolving to not move, you know, just to stick with but that's not the bulk of our practice. The bulk of the practice is understanding that struggle doesn't work. So when the mind takes up a struggle, we want dis- to discern how, what it's setting in motion. You know, that we're exhausting the mind, things are getting tighter, and the tendency of the mind in the future will be to want to struggle, to want to react. So when we're faced with you know, the next arising experience, the next appearance in the mind, oh, it's like this, then to remember this principle, okay, mindfulness is the way of no conflict, no struggle. So what does that look like now? What might that look like now? How might that manifest now with this experience? This is Chikdhan Han. The practitioner observes having put aside every craving, every distaste for his life. And this is why um, equanimity is highlighted as a as the most available taste that we all all of us ordinary folks, it's the most available way for us to have a sense of liberation. Liberation has the flavor of equanimity. Doesn't mean that when we're feeling equanimous it's the same as full awakening. But it's, it gives us a sense of that direction. And not, remember, equanimity is not an indifference. It's a very enlivened state. This is why I love the fact that the Buddha included equanimity as one of the four Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. That doesn't sound like indifference to be in that crowd. It's an enlivened, immeasurable state of mind, equanimity. It's like the heart is unafraid because it knows, it's like its stability isn't dependent, its evenness, its peace, its equanimity isn't dependent on seclusion. Now we get a lot of equanimity when we're secluded. That's why the Buddha emphasized or highlighted um deeper states of concentration because in the deeper, the deepest state of concentration, what's sometimes called the fourth jhana, the strongest, the sort of big characteristic of that state is equanimity. The mind is profoundly equanimous. But it's equanimous because the mind has retreated from things that agitate it. It's really in a quiet place. It's not aware of what it's seeing, not aware of thoughts so much, not aware of touches, sensation. It's retreated from the body, from hearing, from seeing, from thinking. So it's re- the mind is retreated into itself. But that flavor of equanimity then is very inspirational for the mind. Because the mind that naturally wants, this is a wholesome desire by the way, naturally desires that equanimity all the time. Even in the messy world. How can that equanimity arise here, taking care of my children. Here, having to earn a living. Here, dealing with loss. So I just finished with the last um, this, this, uh, principle that Thich Nhat Hanh distills: observation, not indoctrination. Right. So, even though, as you're being mindfully aware, you might have some. Idea. Oh, this is what's going on. And it might be really a a skillful articulation of the insights. Insights aren't conceptual. But the conceptualizing mind might want to conceptualize the insights. Insights are intuitive. The mind sees, understands something. Later, it might think about it or conceptualize it. But we don't want to hold to those conceptualizations of the practice. Because then... We're like holding on to something that won't deliver freedom. It feels good to hold on to these things, the insights, but it doesn't actually work. It stops the practice. And then we end up empty-handed, and then a very unpleasant feeling arises where we feel betrayed because we thought we had made progress. And we did. We had an insight. Mind saw something it hadn't seen before. But then it thinks about it, it conceptualizes it, then it gets attached, it's conceptualization. It stops practicing and instead holds, keeps thinking about its what it knows, what it thinks it knows. And then all of a sudden it becomes stinky and false because the cons- concept of freedom, whatever that concept might be for you, is not the experience of freedom. And the, the, the painful piece is we feel so humiliated because we thought we were doing the practice and then eventually we discovered we weren't. We were doing the same old thing, except it was a, a relatively wholesome thought to be attached to instead of a relatively unwholesome thought like, I'm a bad person or I'm better than everybody else. Now we have the thought, you know, letting go is the way, but we're clinging to it as a thought <laughs> instead of doing it or realizing it directly. So, we have surprisingly only one more day or one more day to talk about mindfulness. And next week, of course, we'll have small groups. So, I encourage you again to take a real fresh look at mindfulness and don't be shy about being a beginner. As you just get a sense, like, well, what is the experience of mindfulness? Don't feel like you have to go back. I mean, it's fine if you want to go to some of your favorite books, favorite teachers, listen to things. But whatever it is, it's here, right? Because the Buddha is pointing to a natural capacity to the mind and not a very refined one. I mean, mindfulness is existing in very ordinary states of mind all the time. So we don't need much more than interest. And then that's what we'll share about. And then remember those two other exercises you can do. Really Times in your life that felt the mind felt really balanced and skillful and then see if you can deconstruct the so what of that mind state would we call m- mindfulness and then times when you didn't the mind didn't seem very up to the job of being a human being and then like okay what was going on there that might have been obscuring or uh, you know burdening or covering up the mindfulness. And that might help you uh, be able to articulate and understand better your experience of mindfulness. So we need to end here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, take a breath or two together. Noticing how mindfulness is already here. Can't break it. Have a good week of practice, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.